My agent called, he said he got some interest in my script I'm glad I didn't tell him that I never finished it I got my cast of characters and outline for the plot I even got a famous classic case of writer's block Get it out of my head 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 Get it out of your head And onto the page Get it out of your head And onto the page Get it out of your head And onto the page Get it out of your head And onto the page Welcome to On the Page. This is the podcast that answers all of your questions about the craft and business of screenwriting. My name is Pilar Alessandra, and I'm the instructor and script consultant here at On the Page. Joining me as guest is John Butler. Hello, John Butler. Hello there. John Butler is the writer and director of Handsome Devil, also might be a handsome devil himself. Oh, undoubtedly. Yeah? So you named the movie after you? Yeah, it's yeah. a biopic. Uh-huh. And it is a feature film in theaters and VOD um, coming out June 2nd. Yes, right? that's right. And uh, is but it's already been out, yeah. In, in in some territories, I'm Irish, and it's uh, had its Irish and UK release, uh, and it's also about to open in Australia, and New Zealand, and then shortly after the US, it is opening in Germany and Austria and a couple of other territories as well, and then it has a much. Uh, wider uh, VOD release much further down the line. So it's not coming out in VOD on June 2nd that you're going to That is a gonna, theatrical release, wait. yeah. And Breaking Glass are distributing that. Very nice. And he also co-wrote uh, The Bachelor Weekend, which um, is the, well, that's what we call it out here, but in Ireland it's known as The Stag, right? Yeah, and words cannot express how much I dislike the American title. <laughs> the Bachelor Weekend. It's dreadful. <laughs> It's a great film, but it's an awful, awful title. <laughs> you have to dumb it down for us a little bit, you know. Yeah, I think it's because, um, or the logic that was given to me is that 70% of VOD purchases are made by browsing alphabetically. So if you have a film that begins with the letter S, your chances of people seeing it on VOD uh, are, are lesser than if it starts with B. Why didn't I name this podcast Alessandra Speaks? Right? Yeah. And then, and then. Or just art with two A's. Or just, oh, very nice. Two to three A's. Very nice. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. The Bachelor Weekend. So we'll, we'll, we'll grin and bear it. Great movie. Thank you. Known as The Stag in Ireland. Uh, with, and uh, that one you co wrote with Peter McDonald. Yes. And uh, you also wrote and directed a six part TV sketch show called Your Bad Self. And that won an Irish Film and TV Award. Right? Yes, indeed, indeed. And, um, and that comes from your comedy roots, yeah, yes? Absolutely. Okay, we have so much to talk about. I know. I know, I don't even know, where, well, I do kind of know where to begin, because we have to start with a movie. Because I just screened this movie, Handsome Devil. It was charming, it was, it was you know, it was all those things that everybody's going to say in the, in the reviews, you know? Um, but I would rather that you actually introduce the movie. Mm-hmm. Tell everybody what it's about. It's a buddy movie about two young boys in boarding school who are forced to share a room together and they consider themselves to be polar opposites of each other. One is a very sensitive and effete and pretentious musician uh, or fan of music, I should say, called Ned. And then on the other side of the room is the star out half on the school rugby team who's like a classic brawny jock called Connor. And they think they're polar opposites, but they come under the influence of a couple of teachers Uh, One in particular who's played by Andrew Scott, who uh, begins to teach them that their differences are actually immaterial and that they're much more alike than they they know they are. So it's a a coming-of-age kind of buddy movie set over the course of a school year. Uh, 
and it's about finding your voice and authenticity and the bravery to be an individual and you know it has echoes of John Hughes's stuff and mm -hmm. maybe also Dead Poet Society um and it's a, 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 a film in which the kids have at least as much to teach the adults as the adults do the kids. And you know what's interesting about about the pitch you just gave is you didn't mention anything about the the fact that your lead is gay, and at at, yeah. at the center of it is a, a kid who's in a closet, mm. in in the closet in a school where being gay is all things bad, mm. um, and uh, and and that is what comes out through the movie um, and, and uh, connects him. Mm. Um, so I'm just curious, how come that wasn't in the pitch? Are you tired of, of, of that, uh, the fact that that issue leads the movie in, in other ways? Or no. is, it, is it, you feel like this is, this is a theme first? It is, and I think like, I'm enormously proud to be a gay man and, and enormously proud of the story. Uh, and I think the question of identity is the key question in the film. And I think there are all sorts of ways to try and negotiate that when you're young. One of them was with your sexual identity, you know. But I always say to people that a minimum of one uh, character in this film is not straight, mm -hmm. which is the, the way to look at it. And, and, and more important to me than the orientation of the two boys in this film is the fact that they're lonely and they want a friend. And for me, the, you know, the fullest expression of any friendship, gay, gay, straight, straight straight is friendship that the fullest expression of that story is, is is along the lines of friendship so it's really important to me that people don't feel that the film doesn't have anything to say to them on any basis you know and um tell me there's there's definitely roots in your own experience um people who are listening to the podcast uh, a lot of them are either in the midst of writing screenplays based on their own lives or are inspired by something that happened to them. So how much of this is truth and where did you need to um, exaggerate or even tamper down mm. uh, the real experience to make this movie? So I, I always call it a, like emotional autobiography. So you're, if you're writing well in any form, you're kind of mapping the terrain of your own heart and you have to do that as a writer or else you're not doing anything of value but the facts of the story are entirely made up. And I think that's the distinction that ought to be made. It's not a question of always writing about what happened to you, but about how you feel and how people feel when they're in situations. And if you, you can write where your own heart is being mined um, in terms of each character that you, you portray, then you have a chance of connecting with people because it's true, you know. So this film is emotionally autobiographical in the deepest sense. Um, and, you know, I would say as a kid, I was probably 50% Ned and 50% Connor. So it was really fun to pull those two parts of me apart and then write them back together. Um, it's free therapy, you know, writing. It always is, if it's good, I think. But, um, yeah, it, yeah, I was a very pretentious music fan as a kid who thought that I was the only person in the world who liked the things that I liked. And I was also gay and I was also really into sport. So, you know reconciling all those things was like the struggle of my young life um, and I always think yeah 50% Ned 50% Connor but actually neither of them as well in a way you know but I can identify with every character in this film at every moment and uh, never felt that I was writing a villain or somebody that I couldn't see myself uh, as. So it's interesting that that 
you went, okay, I'm going to create these characters out of aspects of my own personality. I think a lot of times when people are uh, creating a, a script from their own life, they feel that they have to create a script from their own life. It has to be very true to their factual experience. Mm -hmm. Did you have any draft that reflected that, which was, this is about my life, and then decided, no, I'm going to make it inspired by my life? Or did you always know that you were going to just go from inspiration? Well, I, I, I think the facts of my own life were too mundane to ever consider as a story. You know, uh, I was lucky in so many ways growing up in, in that lots of the things in this film didn't happen to me and I don't think there are moments of great melodrama in the film but it's filmic you know it, it's it's dramatic uh, necessarily so um, and I think one's own life is not always uh, played out along those terms you know for better and for worse so I think if you're a writer then go and write and imagine and invent you know but I just think the point of origin is always one's own heart, and, and that is the thing that gives it value. Um, but it was never a question of this is going to be like the John Butler story in any way. I just haven't had the kind of life. And you know, my background, apart from comedy and sketch comedy, is as a novelist, I wrote a novel in 2011, which is like a semi or quarter autobiographical story about a kid in San Francisco uh, during the dot-com bubble. Um, and that sprang from a place of real uh, autobiography. But by the time you get through writing the first draft, it's not you anymore, it's this other person, and you give yourself a uh, license to create situations and feelings that are you know, interesting and, and other. And that's when you become a creative... Uh, that's when it becomes a creative act. So it, it almost frees you, right? Of course, yeah. And I just think there's something really dull about reading people's diaries. You have to be, you know, unless they're famous and you want to know how they got where they got or, you know, something has added value to it. There's something too indulgent about transcribing the events of one's own life, I think, unless something really spectacular has happened, you know. And again, going for the, mun there's mundane, you know, there's yeah. what I ate for breakfast. Yeah. Right. And it shouldn't be, you know, it has to be a Pop-Tart in the film because it was a Pop-Tart in my life, you have to at some point go, okay, what's the most interesting thing that the guy could eat? That reveals to us who he is or what he's trying to do or what his weaknesses are. You have to use all the elements creatively. You don't owe yourself a faithful retelling of your own life. Your only job is to write a good story. What flavor of Pop-Tart? I'm hearing yeah. that actually there might be a fan of the Pop-Tart in you. No, I, I find them absolutely repellent. Oh, yeah. okay. So that's, right. that's, that's kind of nixed any sponsorship opportunities we have <laughs> with the Pop-Tart people. But I would say that any, if there's any people in the savory snack area that are listening, please come forward. <laughs> you know, it's, there was... Um, uh, your film has been called a a coming-out-of-age story. That's, nice. that's an interesting genre. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that's one that's going to stick? Coming-out-of-age story. Coming out of it. Yeah, I haven't heard that before. Um, <laughs> it's funny. I, don't, I, I always uh, wonder whether it is a coming-out story. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me, because uh, the kid, Connor, in the film The Rugby Player, okay, he hasn't told all the guys in his school in his new school upon arriving that he's not straight but my sense of him as a character is that he knows that about himself and that enough people in his life know it mm. and the, and the uh, you know obviously that is a part of the story but I think coming of age is more uh, relevant to the story because 
that's the thing that's universal, that you arrive at a certain point in your young adulthood where you begin to claim your own identity and your own voice and you begin to let the things that aren't you fall away. Um, and I just think I, I'm, I'm more attracted to the story at the broader level than the specifics. The broader level um, with, with other issues, issues of masculinity and sport. Yeah. Yeah. Loneliness among men and their inability to relate to each other and... A really fascinating aspect of the male experience to me is how much we men treasure our male friendships precisely because there is no intimacy in them. Uh, that fascinates me. Like the fact that we never talk about our feelings to each other is exactly the thing that makes us cherish the friendship, makes us feel safe. Like there's a really funny and interesting paradox at, it, at the heart of that that I'm always pushing at as a writer and it's in the Bachelor Weekend with the Stag as well. Why why we feel safe when nothing's be re been revealed, you know, and why we're so fond of, like, displacement activities, you know, long car journeys, games of golf, watching sport, or laying on the shrink's couch and looking away, like how without the eye contact we can talk to each other, but it's harder for us to do that directly, you know. I just, I think men are fascinatingly weird and stupid and mad, and, and it's always, just as a comedy writer, I, I, I don't know if I'll ever tire of writing around that and into it. Well, I think, I think too, the, the, the assumption that, you know, this is, this is how men communicate or don't communicate is part of what drives your movie in the fact that you understand it's going to be a long time until somebody's actually going to speak the truth here. Yeah. And that's what makes it so interesting and riveting. You're sitting there going, when, when, when? And I should, I should say we're making it sound very dramatic, but it is also really playful and really funny along mm. the way because you do all these silly things along the way to not telling the truth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's definitely what's, what's fun. Yeah. Um, I have to say on a personal level, there is one scene in this, I'm not giving too much away, where um, one of the boys builds a literal wall yeah. down the center of, of the room. Yeah. Um, and it's actually not the person you would think. It's somebody saying, like, look, you know, you're not going to want to hang out with me. Let's just let's just get her done, right? Yep. And actually builds the wall. Yep. And uh, and I just want to say on a personal level, I walked in my freshman year and my, my roommate had done that to me. Uh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, this film was written three-something years ago at a time in which the idea of building a wall was ridiculous. <laughs> And unfortunately, now we are at a place where this is being actively discussed. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, the yeah. idea of separation and othering people and creating distinction where none need be made has suddenly acquired this kind of value in the world that did not exist when I wrote the film. The idea of building a wall at that point was absurd and was played for comic effect. Mm -hmm. But it's so interesting how, as a writer, you can write something and then it can begin to get resonance Afterwards, and then there's there's this wonderful shot You're, you've written and directed the movie, and there's this wonderful shot where the boys are actually talking through the cracks in the wall. Yeah, um, they're talking over it. They're talking sideways, and then but but some they're they can't help but meet each other's eyes at one point through the wall. Yeah, even while they're trying to stay separated. Yeah, and I thought that was really beautiful. Yeah, and it's a little moment of eye contact as well, which like we were talking about earlier, something that's very hard for for men to do and. It just becomes an incredibly charged visual moment in a film about boys because suddenly people, suddenly the audience's head immediately goes towards a, a romantic outcome and this is a buddy movie. But it's so interesting to play with that um, 
element of tension in the relationship because it's all about the audience's perception of that moment. When they see two boys looking at each other, it immediately feels charged because it's rare. And that's really cool. Like, as a writer, particularly, I think you have to be aware of the perceptions of the audience and then be willing to subvert them or advance them, but be engaged with them, you know? And that's your kind of job, and that's what gives electricity to the viewing experience like when you sit in a cinema and you feel the audience leaning in at a certain point it's because you've you've made a decision that tells them you know what they think now we're going here you know yeah I I think that's maybe my favorite thing to do in to to read in a script is somebody who takes a trope and and plays with it and gives you something that you weren't expecting and uh and and you know, when it comes to male archetypes, right? Um, and you look at this kind of a movie, you know, a, a coming-of-age movie set in a school, a boarding school, and we're going to see things like the headmaster and the coach and mm. the popular kid and the not-popular kid, we immediately uh, assign personalities to them. Yep. And so what you're saying is you like messing with that a little bit, right? A little bit. Uh, and then the interesting thing to me is that these are all acts of like gentle subversion, mm-hmm. you know? If you subvert everything, if you don't play within the rules of a subgenre at all, if you don't acknowledge those tropes like you're mentioning, mm-hmm. the, the, the inspirational English teacher, the rugby coach who's, who's boorish, the headmaster at the top of the tree, the music kid, the rugby kid, if you, if you don't acknowledge those tropes at the start, then your subversion doesn't have a frame of reference and, and, and it doesn't have... The meaning won't carry through in the same way. I think... It's important in comedy to acknowledge the form and then to play within it, you know? And that, to me, is something that's a real act of... Um, like, it, to respect where it comes from, you know, to know that those films have been made and then make little changes within those... within the rules of the genre where you kind of go, oh, in this instance, though, this tiny little thing is different and it's allowed to feel different because of the things that are familiar around it rather than throwing all the, the toys out of the pram and just going, oh, no, none of the rules apply here. I'm a fan of um, all the films that preceded mine that are in this area. I think they're great, you know? And I love that. I just love that in my film there's a couple of core elements that are radically different and then there are some things that people will, will recognise and that's, uh, I think that's a good thing, actually. I, I love what you just... I'm writing this down. Ready? Gentle subversion, yeah. right? That's awesome. Well, I love that in the films, that, in the comedy films that I'm uh, the, the, a big fan of. That's always the case. There's 60% of the film structurally you recognize. Mm-hmm. But then 40% is, is, is radically different in a little way. And, and it's, it's, it's proximity to what you recognize is what makes you feel the difference of the other stuff. Whereas if it's all different, you're just like, I don't know what is going on here. And, the, and, and if you have a little message or a little nugget of information that you want people to take out of it, then it's lost, you know. And what are some of those movies that, that are your favorites? I always, I mean, I'm destined to meet him at some point in my life and he's going to say, you've been talking about me for 10 years now, it's a little weird, but I'm a huge fan of Alexander Payne. Um, Election is, was a touchstone for this film. Um, I'm also a big fan of John Hughes, uh, but it was fun to update some of the references of his films. Like, they don't date well in, in terms of misogyny and homophobia mm-hmm, and true. jokes about date rape. Mm-hmm. And so on. It's just interesting to see how the world changes. Uh, so it was fun to work within that genre, but advance some of the politics at the heart of it and, and, and do something that's more inclusive. Um, the LGBT experience in those films is very is either underrepresented or just played for a really bad joke. So 
much as I love those films, it's fun to update the thing. Um, and then also Dead Poets Society was a very obvious thing that you just can't be unaware of as a writer if you're writing any high school film. And mm-hmm. there's a inspirational English teacher in my film and maybe the only little advance or the little gentle subversion in, in mine is that, uh, you know, in Dead Poets Society, the teacher has nothing to learn. He is this kind of impermeable pillar of wisdom who just delivers everything out and then the boys learn from it. But in my film, the teacher has as much to learn and the knowledge flows upwards, you know. So, And that reflects how I really do feel about the world. Like the emotional intelligence of young people is something that has to be acknowledged. It's not just a question of innocence, meeting experience you know that's another binary kind of construct that's worth kind of pulling apart just as much as the gay straight thing and you know masculine feminine and all those other things that are at play in in the film too and also your your headmaster i'm sorry your english teacher you mentioned uh election right and if you take the the uh the teacher in election right Mm. who had so much to learn right and as you said, Dead Poet Society doesn't really, you know, yeah. kind of get this guy. He's so interestingly flawed, and then he's so well played. Yeah. Um, the actor, I just kept going, Moriarty, Moriarty. Yeah, His, Andrew he, Scott. Right, yeah. Andrew Scott, uh, who plays Moriarty in, in, uh, in Sherlock. Um, and he's just, he's, I think what's interesting is he, as the English teacher, may also be aware of the trope himself, mm-hmm. may be aware that I'm supposed to be the English teacher that inspires you. Yeah. Well, guess what? You know, that's not exactly the case. Yeah. And, and that was an interesting way to go with it yeah, as well. That's a really good point. I think you might be the first person to mention that, that this film obviously takes place in a time where the teachers will have seen films about other teachers like mm-hmm. Mr. Chips or whatever, the period. They would obviously know that stuff. So yeah, I think you're right. And Andrew and I spoke a lot about the performative nature of teaching. So there's two layers of performance there, you know, and he comes from a family of teachers. His sister is a teacher, his mother is a teacher. So he knows what that is. And he always, we talked about how the idea is of conveying great interest in your students, but not too great, you know, because it becomes weird then. So the level of interest that you want to portray as a teacher is calibrated in, in, a, in a way that's performative. That's, that's another layer of performance, leaving aside the fact that you're standing in a room in front of 40 strangers who are looking at you and trying to figure out who you are. And then there's obviously the, the main layer of performance, which is that of an actor. So it's, it's fun to try and just talk about the, the relationship of all those and then see it playing out. And I think he understands all that really well. You know, um, this thing as well of teachers, his, his mother has a little motto or saying, as a teacher, no smiling before Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have to break them. Oh my! You have to bring them to heel. Hmm. You know what I mean. And I think that's the, without giving anything away. The opening scene in the film is all about that. You, he comes into a, a, a classroom that is like the jungle, and within two minutes they're brought to heel. You know. Uh, so yeah, and, and that was always my experience with the best teachers, because if you don't do it on day one, it, you you've lost your opportunity. You can't claw it back. So yeah, I, I loved the. Uh, I love the writing about the teacher pupil thing, and I really loved uh, working on it with Andrew. I think he's, I think he's a good actor. <laughs> now, this is this was a movie that filmed in Ireland. Yes. Yep. Um, what is the development experience like um, in 
in Ireland versus the development experience out here. I mean, we know that we do a lot of developing. There are a lot of authority figures with a lot of money who come in and say, okay, I like it, but I like it, but can we keep changing and massaging or whatever? Mm. Um, what's that experience or what was that experience like for you with this film in that place? Well, I, I work with the same producers, or have done on these two films, uh, Rob and Rebecca at Treasure Entertainment, who are a terrific production company. And they have really good notes, but almost before you're writing the script, you're talking to them about it, and they know what it is, and they're simpatico. So I'll write a draft and get really uh, good notes, and write another draft and get really good notes, and write another draft and we'll be there. You know, it, and it's never with them market-oriented. They're motivated by what's in their heart and they're motivated by the idea of me as a writer-director trying to f- having something to say that has value, you know. Uh, so, and that's quite a romantic uh, perception of an industry uh, experience, you know, which is the producer-director-writer thing, but that's the truth and I'm really lucky to have that. Um, and then beyond that, the film is funded by the Irish Film Board and where we're lucky where you guys aren't is that we have a national film funding agency that gives you money to make films, you know? Hold now. Film funding government? Yeah. Weird. Yeah. So weird. And they support you as a short filmmaker when you're starting out. Hold on. I know. Oh my God. It's revolutionary. It certainly is. That is cool though. It's fantastic. We're so lucky. And it's only when you get out on the film festival circuit as a young filmmaker and you meet the other filmmakers who have maxed out their credit cards to make their short film that you realize we're really lucky. You know, it's great. And it pays, it pays the government and the Irish taxpayer, it pays them back uh, many times over in literal terms with the box office of the films that do well, but also the cultural perception of our country, you know. Our message, our stories that we tell ourselves and that we tell the world are are enabled by it, you know. So it is kind of really helpful. But uh, the development process is good uh, because I have good producers, but also because the film board are good to work with and you're given your head after a uh, a certain period. But, you know, you have to, as your listeners will know, you know, until you make your first one, you're you're locked out of the of the world because it's execution dependent as a comedy director and mm-hmm. that's the phrase that you're beaten with over and over again so you've just got to get that first one made and have it do something and then you're at the races you know so i've had a great experience in development um i've heard some of the more frustrating stories about it and it, i i don't know how i'd do with that we'll see as the years go on we will see because because i would imagine i mean you're out here in la yeah mm. uh, you you split your time between mm. la and uh and dublin yeah, yeah? um so that makes I, me sound like phil collins at live out <laughs> you split your time between yeah <laughs> i go and do sing susudio in philadelphia and then i'm yeah. You know what? Just go with it. It's, yeah, it's, I'm happy. It, it makes you sound like a superstar. Be a superstar. Okay. So, so, uh, so since you are in LA and you've got this this movie coming out, I would imagine people are romancing you uh, here in the Evil Empire. So, um, so you know, are you at meetings out here, and are you pitching other ideas? And is there a possibility of? bigger studio, American studio kind of films in, in your future? It's always possible, you know, and to be honest, like, I'm working in a, in a tradition that is American. Like, the films that I'm making are, they belong to the American comedy 
tradition and model, you know, like my heroes are Billy Wilder and, you know, uh, Alexander McKendrick and the aforementioned John Hughes and Alexander Payne. And so I belong in that tradition. That's where I'm comfortable writing. And those are the films I grew up adoring. So you're, you're, you're in that thing and that's something that's really important to, to be after. But I, I don't know if my ambitions are in terms of bigger budgets or anything like that because I don't think... I think comedy stops being funny after a certain number. Oh, really? Yeah. That's 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 an interesting. If theory. you can see the money, it's gone. It's just not funny, you know. So I, I, I'm never going to make obviously a Star Wars film or like that anyway. But my ambition is just to tell stories that I think are funny and that work, you know. And so I've met lots of people, and there's bits and pieces out there that are interesting and that we're talking about. But the next film I'm going to make is a, a I've written and will direct, and it's set here. Uh, but it looks like a very small budget uh, independent film that will be financed hopefully mostly out of Ireland. So, um, but, I, I, but it's set here in Los Angeles. It's set here, yeah. But it's I'm an independent writer director, so at the moment I'm really happy just kind of telling my own stories. But I, I will possibly run out of road, and then would love to direct something that maybe somebody else has written, or you know try something else, or maybe make something that's set over here. But it's not that thing of like. I made my two low budget films and now I'm now I'm gone into the into the big pool. Like I, I don't the only thing that interests me is the quality of the stuff and if I can make it in LA or in Ireland it doesn't really matter as long as it's good. I'm interested about your take on comedy. Um, uh, so so your six part TV sketch show Your Bad Self um, came that was that was the first thing that you did, right? Pretty much. But I, it, it had a very long road, right? It was set up oh. in 2001. It wasn't actually out there till 2011. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. Right? <laughs> you know, that does sound actually like a, a U.S. development experience. Doesn't it? <laughs> um, but what did, well, tell everybody what that was like. It's a, it's a sketch show. Yeah. And also what kind of comedy you were, you were approaching. So it's, it, it's an absurd and kind of dark uh, show that has a kind of English tradition, I would say, actually. There's a terrific uh, comedy writer called Graham Linehan, an Irish writer who wrote Father Ted uh, with Arthur Matthews, and they had a sketch show called Big Train that we loved. Um, also, there was a show in the UK called The Fast Show. But you guys have it over here with, like, Mr. Show and, you know, Amy Schumer's sketch show. So it, it was stuff in that kind of vein. Um, and it was friends and, and I and... M- a bunch of actors that we knew for the most part Michael Michael Hatton who plays the headmaster in my new film Peter MacDonald with whom I co-wrote The Stag um, Donald Gleeson who's a terrific writer as well as being such a great actor Hugh O'Connor is another great and Justine Mitchell so these were people that we just gathered together and we had very little money and very little time but uh, we had a we didn't have the money for a writer's room but we got the actors who were involved to create characters that they would play and then I wrote some and my producing partner, Ben Kelly, wrote some, and we just all kind of, with Treasure, Rob and Rebecca, who, who produced my two films, we just put this thing together. So, yeah, it was kind of the first big thing that I was involved in, and it was incredibly chaotic and mad, and some of them worked and some of them didn't, as is the case with sketch comedy, but I'm a big comedy fan, and God, that was a steep learning curve. How so? Because you're shooting six sketches a day, and then sometimes you're shooting, the guy who wrote it is in it, and he has very strong ideas about what it is, but you only have two hours to shoot the sketch, and... 45 minutes into it, it's not working. You know you have to be off this one in another 45 minutes and you're out of time and 
the costume isn't right and it's raining, it's meant to be outdoors. The sword is made of crap paper and it is wilting in the rain. The dog you were promised is a cat. The scene has a topless model, but we can't find anybody in the neighborhood who's willing to take off their top. And you have to be creative. And then at a certain point, you have to pull the plug. You know what I mean? You can't go over because then you're eating into the, the other actor in that sketch. His sketch is up next and he's put a huge or she has put a huge amount of work into that. And they deserve the same amount of time. And you're all in this together and you're all looking at each other and you all know what's happening and you have to figure out how to manage the situation. So I developed this enormous sty in my eye oh God. after two weeks, which is based purely on stress. Uh. Um, my right eye closed like how to get ahead in advertising. I literally, my right eye closed and it had to be lanced by a, a local doctor in Ireland. This is far too much information. No, it's, no it's, I'm just thinking, God, that make a great sketch. You can call the sketch the sty. The sty. Right. I used to go to the steam room in the hotel where we were shooting every night and sit in the steam room and see if I could kind of try and steam out the tension. <laughs> it doesn't work, people. But it also sounds like, you know, sometimes when we talk about sketch comedy, we, it, it's a crash course for writing. But in this case, it sounds like a crash course for directing. Yeah. You're seeing all the things that you're going to have to deal with as yeah. the person who runs a set. Yeah. So, so is that what made you go, you know what? I have a style in my, my eye, but I think I'm going to do this for a two-hour movie now. Yeah, but the thing you kind of get, take out of it more than anything, and the biggest lesson, and this makes me sound like a megalomaniac, but control... Is, is everything. Sure. And that's why maybe I am so interested in writing and directing and continuing along my little path because, you know, the stuff that I do may or may not work, but at least it's m- m- my own volition, like I'm holding the reins, you know, and I think that's something that really I was born out of that experience where the chaos and the, the input of hundreds of voices was something that it's hard to manage. And so you become attached to if you're a writer, you become attached, or a director, you become attached to control. It's such a valuable commodity, you know, because film is a very collaborative medium, but then if you're a writer-director, the vision becomes singular. You know, you're, you kind of have to just be the guy who goes, well, this is how I see it, and you take everybody's input, but it's your name on the thing at the end. So it's about distilling it all down into one vision at the end, and that was the biggest lesson I think I took out of your, your bad self. So this next movie that you said is set, is it L.A. or is it set in... San- L.A. Okay, because I yeah. know that you also have experience in San Francisco. Yes. As well. Yeah. Um, can you give a, a sense of what the logline is, or is that all hush-hush? No, of course I can. It's okay. called Papi Chulo. Okay. And it is about a lonely, white, young weatherman at a TV station here who drives by Home Depot and sees a, a portly, middle-aged uh, male Latino migrant worker. And... Um, he thinks he looks kind and nice and he's very lonely so he hires him but he hires him basically to be his friend and uh, a kind of odd couple friendship develops between them despite a complete language barrier the weatherman doesn't speak any Spanish and the migrant worker doesn't speak any English and they have nothing in common you know the weatherman is gay and the migrant worker is straight and a grandfather and married so despite all the differences cultural and socio-economic and in terms of sexual orientation and everything, they, they forge this kind of friendship. Um, and uh, it, it springs from a, f- my own feelings uh, and it also is a reflection of what I see when I drive around LA. I, I find, the, um, I find the, 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 the gulf between those two communities to be like, conspicuously vast and it's very interesting to me just to write about it as an outsider. And yet we're all in each other's backyard. Absolutely. 
it, it fascinates me. It, it's such an interesting and, and so clearly defined uh, system, it just seems, in around kind of Beverly Hills and Hollywood and Los Angeles, maybe in general. Um, but it's a comedy film, and it's a comedy film about loneliness, basically. Is there any kind of compa- comparison, this, in each other's backyard, but a cultural gulf between, be- between them, back where you're, where, where you're originally from in Ireland? You mean, is, the, is it a story that resonates over there? Well, yeah. I mean, is there, is there any uh, reflection? Like, is there, is there a community that's in each other's backyard that also doesn't understand each other back where you're from? Or is that one of the things that, that fascinated you? The fact that, like, you know, we are in this sort of melting pot of people, but we still, like, put up these emotional walls. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it's actually, that's a good question, because it isn't really, um, it's an American story to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it's a story that occurs to me as an outsider um, because you become accustomed to the structures of the country you grew up in but then when you when you arrive somewhere some of the best art that's been made about Los Angeles is by outsiders um, like I'm thinking of David Hockney's paintings or you know obviously I mean the film uh, examples are, are, are vast as well but I think you know East Coast writers have written beautifully about Los Angeles like Bradley, Bradley Snellis and you know, uh, Billy Wilder, of course, is a great example of that as well. I just think the the, the lens of the outsider is a, is a really interesting one to put on this place because it's so LA is so romantic and haunted, you know, and has kind of layers of kind of sedimentary story buried there. And I always feel like it's haunted. I, I really do. And and, and and the allure of it is so clear as well. The way the, way the light is in the evening is a, is, a, is a dream to a filmmaker. And when you're wandering around the city, you're just struck by how incredibly atmospheric it is. And I just wonder sometimes whether it's possible to hold on to that romantic view of a place if you, if you grow up in it. Like when I have a visitor to Ireland, they're like, oh, look at this, whatever it is, a building or a view. And I'm like, what? Like, And you literally can't see what they're talking about. So the film is kind of a little love letter to here. And I've been here at really low ebbs personally in my life when I've been as lonely as the weatherman and I've driven by the Home Depot and kind of really wanted to know whether what, the, what people are thinking and you know just the loneliness in you reaching out to the vastness of the city and trying to find some kind of connection and it's just a, a good place to write from and as ever it is an emotional autobiography I never did what the character in this film does but it's me uh, out there feeling it so I'm just curious um, you know, being that you split your time, as we as we said, Phil Collins, by right? location. That's right. You're by by location. Um, uh, what is the biggest culture shock moving from Ireland to the U.S. or U.S. to Ireland? You know, the fact that you go back and forth. Mm. What do you immediately have to adjust to every time that you that you move from one location to the other? Uh, Every every the primacy is given to the heart here that it isn't uh, in Europe. So people say I feel like all the time here, but nobody feels like anything in Europe. They always say I think. Uh. I think that's so and so, but I, here it's like I feel like that's because the heart is given primacy, and and sometimes it feels too direct or too definitive or assertive to say I think this needs to happen. So it's just a. It's a linguistic thing or a semantic thing, but I think it reflects a deeper uh, process in American life, and that's the hardest thing to get used to when you go home. And then on the other side, in Ireland, there's uh, we're, we're very diffident. Like we, 
if you're if somebody is in your way and you want to walk by them and aren't you go sorry mm-hmm. you put their sorry can I get past you or if you're looking for the barman you're like sorry can I order something like first thing you say is sorry you apologize for your existence um, whereas here it's like excuse me <laughs> you know the directness of it or if you order a coffee in Ireland and if you said I, I need a the guy would be like, you need, like, how dare you? Would you like something? You know what I mean? <laughs> but here, I don't know. Those are the little things that are, uh, they're all semantic little uh, examples, but there's something behind them that's very interesting and it takes a, a week or so to get used to. Like, um, I'm going to have, if I, say, if I ordered in a restaurant in Dublin the, the day I get home, if I got, I'm going to have the thing. I think it just is a little bit different linguistically, you know? You know, whenever I, I, I used to, when I would teach in London and, and in uh, Dublin, um, whenever I, w- I would teach dialogue, I used to say, okay, well, the way to understand where people are from is not by writing dialect, but by writing phrases, things that mm. you would say based on where you're from, right? Yeah. And I would say, you know, what are some of the local expressions? And people would give me some some colorful things that I wouldn't know, and that would be a great way to write an Irish character, yes. okay? But then I would say, okay, well, how would you write an American? What would they say? Mm. And inevitably, somebody would say, I love myself. <laughs> huh. <laughs> That's the perception is that, you know, U.S. people go around going... I love myself. <laughs> I am awesome. Yeah. And I get that. I get that. I don't know if we literally go around saying, I love myself. Although maybe in Los Angeles, there is, there is a little bit of that with the but isn't that self-help great? thing. Like I genuinely think that's brilliant. It's so good to have that. Like in Ireland, an insult, a put down is like, you must love yourself. Like to think that. You, like you must think you're great. And in America, that same phrase is, you must love yourself. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and that the greater truth is on the American side, and the Irish people could stand to learn that. Yeah, you must love yourself. Well, I think you know? I think you know, it's go, going back to this idea of making movies, right? Mm. You know, you have to have an awful lot of belief in yourself and your idea, um, because out here there's just a you know a lot of competition. Yeah, and if you don't believe in your project. Who will? If you don't believe in yourself as a creator, who will? Yeah. So, uh, so I can imagine that also that sort of translates. You know, it's our it's our push and shove our way to the top yeah. mentality. Some of my early pitching over here was horrendous. Like, so tell me you're about your, you know you're in a room and the guys like tell me the story and you're like, oh well, I don't know, it's not really actually that good and I kind of have to do a lot of work on it and you know. Oh God. No. Oh God. The year is 1972. This kind of you know what I mean. You have right. to go at it. I do. I do. I have a lot of students uh, who do that in class. Um, interestingly, the majority of the people who do that are, are women. You know. Really? Uh, yes. They immediately yeah. back back off and start apologizing and start explaining why they're not ready. Yeah. And I, yeah, you have to do exactly what you said. You know, yeah. the year is 1972. This is what's happening. This is why you should, you know. Yeah. And, Power uh, is never given. It's always taken. Right. So. Right. Exactly. Yeah. This, this has been very interesting, John. <laughs> you know, and, and also I should, I should mention, gosh, we, we haven't even hit on the fact that you're also a novelist. You mentioned mm. that at the beginning. Mm. You're a novelist. You're a journalist. You write sketch, sketch comedy. You write features. Mm. You write everything yeah is is that easy for you to go from one kind of writing style to another i don't know because recently i'm a film writer and director and that's kind of it it feels like that's what i'm becoming Mm -hmm. and that's something i really want to just keep doing and where i'm getting the most joy uh literally and also 
in terms of the work. So I love it. I absolutely adore being a film writer and director. I, that feels like my metier. You know, I have enjoyed all the other stuff and will occasionally write a piece for a newspaper or something, but I'm a film uh, writer and director. I, with apologies to my UK publishers who <laughs> are looking for another book, but I just... You can't be a tourist in any of these industries. Like, if you're going to be a screenwriter, you've got to be a screenwriter. And then you can't just, for a month, be a novelist again. They're different forms. So, you know, I hadn't made a film when I wrote my novel. So I, I think I'm just becoming something now, and that's something to keep going on. So uh, where should people see uh, Handsome Devil? So it's theatrical releases in New York, uh, New Orleans, Miami, and Los Angeles. It's on June 2nd, and Breaking Glass Pictures are distributing it. But I'm on Twitter at Mr. John Butler, and I'm just incessantly tweeting things about the film there. I'm a publicity machine. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. As well you should be. <laughs> right? Yeah. You right? must love yourself. You must love yourself. And uh, um, uh, let's see. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I should probably say a couple things about uh, On the Page. <laughs> so everybody go to onthepage.tv, see what's happening here at the studio. But also, I have not thanked the people who've donated to the podcast in oh, a while. On. I know. I suck. First <laughs> of all... Um, uh, this is from uh, Sam Mitchell, who is out of the UK. Uh, here, pr- pronounce this correctly for me. Where is he from? He's from Corsham in Wiltshire. Oh, see, you make you make that sound nice. Hi, Sam. Hi, Sam. Um, he donated twenty dollars. Thank you so much, Sam. I really appreciate it. Also, uh, sorry. This is me having printed last minute. Sean Wolf. I never mentioned Sean Wolf. He actually contributes $3 every month. And that's something that you guys probably don't know about. If you go to On the Page and you go to uh, the podcast section and the donation section, you can actually contribute something every month if you want to. Sean paid for our water. That's right. That's right. But also, you know, three bucks every month is, you know, over a year. Not bad. No, it's a fantastic yeah. donation. Thank you so much, Sean. And also, I want to thank Gail Bashara. Gail is out of Dallas, and Gail is great. She always looks fabulous in class whenever I see her. Thank you, Gail. And she contributed $20 to the show. Um, also, Arthur Long, he said, I can't believe it's almost been 10 years since I started listening to your podcast. What have I wow. done with my life? Here's another donation. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Arthur Long had an existential crisis while donating to On the Page. But, oh, you know, welcome to the club, Yeah, Arthur. there you go. Yeah, I feel the same way, Arthur. Thank you for your $20. I really appreciate it. And Vicki McWilliams, I may have thanked you already, but I'm just going to thank you again because I can't remember. She donated 50 bucks. Nice. 50 bucks from Vicki McWilliams. Thank you so much. So um, all those donations really, really matter. They help because, uh, yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot of bottled water and coffee and, <laughs> and upkeep of the equipment and, uh, and time. Um, so I really appreciate it. Um, again, go to onpage.tv. There are... Classes that are going on, look for the July 8th and 9th rewrite class for people who are from out of town. Um, Let's say you're from Ireland and you want a Los Angeles vacation. Come on over. Spend two days rewriting your script and you can also take it even if you aren't in rewrite mode. Uh, Consider it advanced writing techniques. I think that's all the plugging I'm going to do. 
And you must love it. yourself. And you must love yourself. And you must see handsome devil. Oh God, you must see handsome devil. By our handsome devil, John Butler. Thank you so much, John, for being here. Thank you. I loved it. And thanks to everybody for listening. Have a good writing week. 